didn't have to keep those two worlds separate. Poetry, medicine, essays, short stories, paintings, photography, all those can exist in the same space and they give us this wonderful way of understanding our patients. This is Meaningful Medicine. In a challenging and unpredictable world with high burnout rates, this is a podcast where incredible individuals share their most meaningful patient experiences and focus on those moments of positivity and joy that sparked their love of healthcare and changed the way they practice medicine. Hi, I'm Nicole Hohenstein, and I'm an emergency medicine resident at UCSF. Hi, I'm Shiva Kayambashi. I'm a doctor and professor of family and community medicine at UCSF. We're the co-hosts of Meaningful Medicine, We created this podcast to highlight stories of healthcare professionals who have found a sense of meaning, resilience, and joy in their work. Hi, Shiva. How are you doing? Hi, Nicole. I'm doing really well today. Thank you. How about yourself? I am doing well. I'm so excited to be here with you today. We get to talk about a very special topic that I know is close to your heart, as well as some of our other producers on the Meaningful Medicine podcast team. We're going to be talking about poetry and medicine today. Yeah, Nicole, I'm thrilled about our guest, who we'll introduce in a moment, who's a dear friend of ours. And I'm also just thrilled that we decided to dedicate this episode to just talking about how poetry matters in the realm of health and healthcare and illness and coping and just in medicine for us as physicians and students in medicine as well. So I'm just really excited that we get to dedicate this episode to that topic of poetry. Nicole, you have some poetry in your blood, don't you? I wouldn't say yes. Maybe uh, maybe it, it skipped me. But uh, yeah, my grandfather did a lot of poetry growing up. And so definitely something near and dear to my heart and my family's heart as well. And, you know, the power of written and spoken word, I think, storytelling and being able to showcase really how you're feeling different experiences through this medium is just it's so important and so powerful and I know we've sprinkled in some wonderful poetry some wonderful quotes in previous episodes so it's exciting to really focus and be able to talk about the importance of poetry and medicine today. Yeah, absolutely, Nicole. And I just want to welcome all of our listeners today to this very special episode of Meaningful Medicine, where we are going to delve into the unique journey of using poetry as physician educators and in teaching medical students on their journey and residents as well. So we're here with my very old and very dear friend and colleague, Dr. David Elkin, who is a UCSF professor of psychiatry. He has been the director of the Psychiatry Consultation Liaison Service at San Francisco General Hospital. I'm just going to say for several decades because I don't want to have anyone count his age, but he has he's extremely experienced and wise. And he's really a friend to patients and residents and students. He's beloved by all, uh, including us. And so Dr. Elkin has a lot of experience in this area of using poetry and literature and basically the medical humanities in teaching students and residents. And he's just really so masterful in this area. And I'm excited for us to get to talk to him today. It's such a pleasure to know him and to know that he's out there teaching so well and modeling for students and residents um, how to be a quintessential physician, in particular in psychiatry. I know so many students who've 
the thought, I don't know what I want to be. But then after they spend some time with Dr. Elkin, they're like, I think I want to be just like him. I might end up being a psychiatrist. So it is a testament to what a wonderful teacher and human being he is. So welcome, Dr. David Elkin. Thank you so much, Shiva and Nicole. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for the very kind words. I'm going to spend the rest of the hour trying to live up to this. We'll see. We have no doubt you will be blowing us away. This isn't Dr. Elkin's first time on the podcast. He previously was on the podcast talking about his journey, kind of figuring out what career path to take. So if someone's interested in or not sure of what career path, Dr. Elkin has a wonderful episode previously on meaningful medicine. But welcome, Dr. Elkin. We're very happy to have you back. We'd like to start out each episode by asking our wonderful guests to, in short, share a meaningful moment from early on in your training that was particularly formative or defining experience. We had a patient when I was in my beginning of fourth year of medical school back in Philadelphia, and this woman came into the ICU once every month almost like clockwork, but we didn't really concentrate on that. We concentrated on the fact that she had congestive heart failure. She was a grandmother in her late sixties and we treated her as we normally would. She got better. She needed some Lasix, a diuretic to help her pee out the excess water that her heart wasn't able to accommodate in her body. Gave her the same medication she'd been taking as an outpatient to strengthen her heart. And she said she had been a little sloppy with the medications recently. And she'd also admitted to us that she had downed a liter of Coke and had maybe had a bag of potato chips as well, all very much off of her diet and things that would guarantee her getting worse. So we were treating her very much in the biomedical perspective. And of course she got better very quickly, but what we didn't think about was the mystery of if it was that easy, why wasn't she getting better on the outside? Why was she unstable? And we also didn't ask why every month. So it was the social worker who cracked that case. And the social worker took a look through all the old records because she was curious. And what she found was that this patient had been relocated after the death of her husband to be closer to her family. And she got lonely. I mean, the family showed up in the ICU and they were very concerned, you know, oh, grandma will be here all the time. Mom, we're gonna be here for you. And apparently they would be for a week or two. And then she would go back into this kind of lonely existence where she was 10 miles away and she didn't have the support that she usually had in the place where she had moved from, lived most of her life. And so she got lonely. And so I don't think she was doing it on purpose, but I think she'd learned over the year or two that she'd been moved down, that if she destabilized medically, she would end up in the ICU and her family would come running. So I think that really taught me about the power of looking beyond just the biomedical, thinking more about the psychological and the social or the family dynamics. And it also taught me the power of story and narrative, right? Because we had a very simple narrative going, which is, oh, this person hasn't been taking their medications. That's why they're unstable. They're off their diet. The broader story though, was one of loneliness and of trying to re-engage with family. And her medical problems were really just a byproduct of that. And our inability to appreciate that would have led to her just going out once again and coming back every month. So instead, the social worker arranged for them to get family therapy and talked about the problem openly. And it really helped open my eyes to 
how you can be a very effective physician. You don't have to do all this. You could have a social worker on your team, but you do have to think about it. You have to be open to it. So again, the power of story, the power of narrative, that was the big lesson for me. I haven't forgotten it. That's a very powerful story. And listen to us, we're, you're telling a story about a story. Isn't that what life is all about? And it's you know, taking the time and having the interest and the curiosity, as you mentioned, the social worker taking that lens of curiosity about her humanity and her life, as opposed to the lens that we often train in medicine to take is the lens of sort of being very direct into like what's wrong and how do we fix it? What's wrong and how do we fix it? And we do that very quickly and we try to be very effective in a rapid way, but we do miss the story. you become inspired to incorporate the use of poetry and the use of some of the literature and medical humanities, both in your practice and also in your teaching and modeling with students and residents as they learn from you? I would add in my life as well, because I think part of the focus in this podcast is about us as clinicians and who are we and how do we take care of ourselves. But yeah, I mean, if you want to learn more, I guess this is a bit of a plug, but our earlier episode on Finding Your Path in Medicine was where I talked about my transitioning from being really interested in the sciences and my original goal of going into infectious diseases, becoming an epidemiology intelligence service officer and chasing down epidemics. That gave way to my switching to psychiatry. But the other thing that changed also was I'd always compartmentalized my interest in the arts and literature and science was separate from that. And I think I grew up thinking, okay, I'm going to become a scientist. So this other stuff that I'm interested in, poetry and reading and fiction, and history, science fiction, that's all, that's all separate. And it really wasn't until I was out of residency as a psychiatrist, when I started to appreciate that the thing that I really gravitated towards with patients was their stories. I really wanted to hear about their stories. When I was an intern in internal medicine, I would say at least half of my patients were dying of heart disease, pulmonary disease, and they just wanted to talk about their lives. And I was good at that. I was good at listening. I learned that that was really effective, but I still thought that was somehow separate. And so it wasn't until I was out for about nine years that I actually went to a conference. It's kind of a boot camp on bioethics and the humanities. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I'm really interested in ethics, but I like the humanities too. I wonder how those relate to each other. And I think the faculty there, they had really thought carefully about this. And this was the beginnings of the whole narrative medicine and medical humanities movement. And they really made a strong case that all these things are related, that we can appreciate story, appreciate narrative, and it gives us a much better window, more powerful tools to understanding our patients. And that was really the beginning for me. And then I came back to work and I thought, you know, there's no reason why I couldn't do this some of the time. So. Well, there was another resident and there was another attending who were very interested in the same thing. So we piloted it just reading some short stories with the medical students and residents on our service. And we picked topics that were kind of adjacent to medicine and psychiatry. The students and residents who came really liked it. I think my boss at the time was a little confused about it, why we were doing that and taking over a case conference time, but it grew in popularity. And I really learned that I didn't have to keep those two worlds separate. Poetry, 
medicine, essays, short stories, paintings, photography, all those can exist in the same space. And they give us this wonderful way of understanding our patients. I also talked about this on an episode of The Nocturnus. It's season four, episode one. It's called Burn the Map. And I talk about how I took an improv workshop that was at a national conference, and it really transformed the way I talk with patients. So what I came to learn was that the arts just are so powerful in understanding our patients. And some of the poetry that's at our disposal really helps us understand ourselves, our patients, helps us connect. Sometimes we even prescribe poetry to our patients, but that's a whole other story that we might get into. I think that when you shared all the various forms of the arts and how that tells a story, it reminded me of a patient that we had on the ward that was completely and utterly depressed and in a despairing state. And he was emaciated and he wouldn't eat. And I had first met him to admit him to the unit. And my nurses who had met him before me had said, oh, he's not going to talk to you. He doesn't, he won't talk to anybody. He won't make eye contact. He just looks at the wall. And of course I was his doctor and I was supposed to help him. So I went in and I tried to talk to him and he, just as my nurses who knew better than I said, he would was laying on his side, skin and bones, staring at the wall. At least I thought it was the wall and everyone thought it was the wall. And this is very interesting because what happened next was I knocked on the door. He didn't say anything. I came in, he didn't respond to anything I said. And then I left (laughs) and then I scratched my head and I thought, well, what is it that we can do? What is it we can do? So I went back in and this time I went around to the side where he was staring at the wall. And I, I, you know, I bent down and I did what was right was make eye contact with him or try to make eye contact. And when he wouldn't talk to me or even look at me, I looked over and there was a very small photo from his wallet that was a picture of his dog who had passed away a few months ago. And he wasn't looking at the wall. The following day, I brought in my dog. You guys all know Shamsi, the therapy dog. I brought him in and the patient came to life. And the dog came to life and they were petting one another and playing on the bed. And this man became new because I understood that that was his dog and that he had a relationship. And he actually then started telling me about his dog. So speaking of art or, you know, not only a poem or a a written word, but a photo can tell so much about what somebody's focused on. Uh, And then he told me a story about how he sank into a very deep despair and really a depressive state, and he stopped eating and stopped caring after his dog, who was his best friend, passed away. The story ends better at the end of it all. We made connections with him and the therapy dog, and then we eventually, after some weeks of rehab, got him eating and drinking, and we drove him to the SPCA, and he adopted a dog. So it was really quite a beautiful story at the end of it all. But all because he didn't have the ability to tell me his story, but If you have the ability to pay attention to what someone's paying attention to, then that might help. I wanted to just mention, just as we're dialoguing about how poetry has come into our lives, Nicole, you were saying that your grandfather was a poet, and my great, 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 great grandfather in the 8th century was a poet named Omar Khayyam. I don't know if you've heard of him before, but he was very well known in the United States because he was sort of required reading in the 50s and 60s for many students. So his poetry, which is translated from Persian, is quite famous for a line that says, a loaf of bread, a jug of wine, and thou. Uh, So any of our listeners, if you've ever heard that, that is somehow in my blood, I hope. 
And so I started to read poetry in medical school because I was in a despairing state. <laughs> I was having a really hard time being a medical student, especially in third year. And I really, really had a very hard time with the emotional and sensitive heart that I carry inside of me, coping with how much illness and pain and suffering I was face to face with. And I had a really difficult time separating myself from the experiences of my patients and their suffering. And I was really looking for a way to cope and to find strength and meaning. And I would just wander into bookstores after classes and after shifts in the hospital. And I was always drawn to the self-help section. Many self-help books quote poets and so on. And I was always drawn to the poetry section. And I would just sit for hours and take notes on things that I read. And I started to realize that there's some some deep wisdom in the poetry, especially in some of the ancient poets of 14th and 13th century Iran, which is where I'm from. Uh, Rumi and Hafez were some of the poets that I just really felt connected to, translated to English by Coleman Barks and Daniel Ladinsky, respectively. And then also some contemporary poets like Mary Oliver really speaks to my heart and some others who really speak a lot about the wisdom that nature tells us. So I, I found a lot of really deep strengthening to me uh, as I would read poems and I would often memorize them and recite to myself. And then when I became an attending, you know, eventually I did residency and graduated all that and became an attending at San Francisco General many years ago, I found that it was my job to help my residents cope because I saw residents and students having an incredibly hard time. Some of it was the intensity of suffering of our patients. Some of it was the intensity of the workload. Nicole, as you know, as a resident, the hours are grueling and the work that's the, the work that's put upon you, the responsibility is intense and kind of overwhelming. And so I found it my job not only to come in and round with the residents and students on the wards when I was attending, but really to kind of lift them up from what looked like a sinking state. They felt like they were sinking. So I would sort of intuitively bring a poem of the day in my pocket and I would ask us before rounds if we could just take a moment and while everybody's trying to have a little coffee and breakfast, can we just, can I read you a poem? And then I would ask, you know, if people wanted to close their eyes and just have a poem read to them and take it in. And then I would read it a second time. And I found by their responses, the poetry really spoke a lot to many students and residents. And I found that I was sort of passing along a gift that I had gotten. I would pick the poems that were appropriate to the themes of what we might be dealing with, for example. I want to share with you one poem right now. Would that be okay, Nicole and David? Can I can I read a poem to you? I have to say also before you begin, Sheba, that it's just those stories give me goosebumps. I mean, first of all, the fact that there's a lineage between you and someone in the eighth century who was writing poetry halfway around the world, and now you're here is incredible. And then the story about the man with his dog, even though I've heard that before, still gives me goosebumps. And like you, I struggled in medical school. It was a really hard adaptation. I'm sure some of our listeners can identify with this medical school, nursing school, wherever you are. And I think I know which poem you're going to read because of that. It's the perfect choice. David, are you guessing that I'm going to read Wild Geese by Mary Oliver? I think we're that much in sync that I guessed that yes. If anybody's listening and you would like to close your eyes and just let a poem be read to you, I'm going to read Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. 
Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. pause and then I usually read it a second time because the first time you're first hearing something it touches you but when you hear it a second time you actually hear particular lines that actually really move you or resonate inside of you and for the purpose of time for our podcast Nicole I won't read it a second time but usually I also give people a copy so that they could look at it sometimes when we're rushed we'll just rush through and you know take a deep breath and take that in and then go on to starting to present the new patients and talk about medicine. But I find that it kind of puts people in a more grounded place, you know, when we read a poem first, in a place of center. And like you said, David, in a place of being in your life, as opposed to just being the workhorse on the ward or something like that, or that only sees with one lens, being in, in the world, you know, thinking of geese in the air and the blue sky and, and the calling and just being human again, so that we can relate to one another. You know, hearing both you and David share that you both had struggles during medical school and, you know, it was definitely not a walk in the park for me either. I think it is this universal struggle, whether it's undergrad, whether it's graduate school, whether it's your first job, when you're in a new environment and you're pushed to your limits, having mentors, making space to just talk And I think to create this space of reminding us of the humanity and reminding us that we are human, we all have shared experiences, I think is just so beautiful. And I can only imagine, you know, every day in emergency medicine, we start with a teaching point before we sign out. And what a great way to start the day if I bring out some poetry. So I definitely am inspired. I think this is a beautiful start to the day. There's so many different poems out there, some of them really short. I think that's also what's really impressed me about what you do, Shiva, which is um, you were leading rounds. I know that you were very sensitive to everyone having to rush around. People were in the middle of very long days in the family medicine residency program here. And yet you found even five minutes to read a poem and just have people slow down. I mean, even when we were listening, it's been a long day for me and I can feel my my pulse slowing down. I could feel my body relaxing. I could feel myself deepening into something in a really nice way, right? How often do we run around and we're just starting to lose the thread of everything that we're doing and these poems can take us back and they don't have to take us very long to do them, to cover them, to read them together, to reflect, to just be quiet together. It's such a beautiful and powerful thing to do. Thank you. Thank you both. Thanks for reflecting on that with me. Yeah, I'm so grateful for what you shared. And one of the things I would love to share with you also is that I have some favorites, you know, over the years that are that I sort of often turn to. And I know that kind of happens, right, for, for us. But I also don't always have a poem. So I like poetryfoundation.org. Again, for anybody who's listening, 
I find that, I mean, there are other websites as well that are sort of resources that have collections of poetry, but whatever collection you might find, you can just kind of search a theme. Like, let's say you're dealing with sudden, you know, loss or or a birth, you know, something beautiful and something wonderful or, or some miraculous recovery, you can sort of search themes and see what touches you. See, not all poems that are listed are going to touch you, but something might touch you and it might just sort of quiver something in your heart. And again, then if it touches you, it's worthy just to hold in your own heart and, and also to share. So I, I, that's how, how I've come across some of the poetry that I've shared as well as by, by searching by theme. David, I'm curious from your perspective and your experience, you've been using poetry and, and the humanities over the years. What's a lesson that you think you could share that you've learned about the impact of using literature, poetry in teaching students and residents? I think you've identified a number of them. One is that any objection about inefficiency, spending a little bit of time on the humanities, I think can be easily disproven because it's these exercises don't have to be long. They could be five or 10 minutes long. They could be an hour long if you want to, but they can be very brief and they're very powerful. And I think they invite us into a space of reflection, something that we don't have often enough. They help us to build good habits, right? To like give ourselves the time during the day to do exactly this. This is just so incredibly important. And yet we lose that somehow when we're in the middle of our busy days. The poems also and the poets speak to universal experiences, sadness, loss, and positive emotions as well. And I think also there's something about medicine, ideally to me, it should be very much about the human experience. And a lot of times we lose that as well. There's so many biological facts to remember about medicine, right? The anatomy, the physiology, pharmacology, but all of that stripped of its relation to human nature, I would argue is really less powerful and loses a lot of the meaning along the way. Poetry and essays, short stories, all have the capacity to help us bring that back. It helps to remind us that we're individuals. We're not just cogs in the machine. It helps us to remember that our patients are all undergoing their own journeys, many of them very difficult, filled with loss and sadness and challenges, and we can help them as well. Even the beginning of our orientation slide deck that I put together in psychiatry has a little slide from Mary Oliver, and it shows her with her dog on the couch. And the lines from the poem are from the, the poem Instructions for Living a Life say, pay attention, be astonished, tell about it, right? Just those three steps. And so I'll tell the medical students, that's what you should be doing as you adjust to this rotation, as you go through each day. And the lesson, hopefully you'll take beyond this rotation and through the rest of your life, pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. Those three things, paying attention is so important creating the space within yourself to really appreciate what's going on. And then the third step, which of course is so important to tell about it, to connect with others and connect with ourselves, I would argue as well. Can it be that simple? I think we might say that it is, it can be that simple. And maybe that's giving something back to medicine that's missing.
I love that. And also, it can be that simple. That's one of the beautiful things about poetry in particular is that large concepts are brought down and simplified or are distilled into just a few words. Pay attention. Instructions for living a life. Pay attention. Be astonished. Tell about it. That's a poem. That could be a whole manual for... <laughs> it could be a 2,000-page book, but it also could be just a single poem. And I think I love that that about poetry very much. There's something really beautiful about how you share that with your students and residents and sort of give them that as an instruction on being here. I, I, I don't think that's how they've been told to be ready to prepare for you know rounds of psychiatry, but you're bringing the humanity to it and reminding them uh, we are all human in this together. There's also another beautiful poem, David, I was wondering you might share with us that I know is especially meaningful to you and you do often share it as well with your students and residents that talks about the intricate dance between sorrow and kindness. Would you be willing to share that with us? I would love to. I just pulled it up just before you mentioned it because I think we're so in sync. We, we share a birthday. That's what this is about. Yeah. I was yeah. going to say we should tell yeah. our listeners that we share a birthday. <laughs> this is by one of, well, Shiva's favorite poets, a Palestinian-American poet named Naomi Shihab Nye. And this poem is called Kindness. Kindness by Naomi Shihab Nye. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows, and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Thank you, David and Nicole, for reading that together. It, there's something very beautiful about reading a poem together, like sharing it and hearing each other's voices, I think, as we read it. I love this poem, too, because I think it takes students and residents and all of us into the space where we have to think about our empathy and what it means for the listeners, I guess, too, if you look up the history of this poem, it's based on an actual incident, something that really did happen to Naomi Shihab Nye when she was traveling in Central America and there really was a death and it was very jarring for her. And I think she was just trying to make sense of it. But isn't that true for all of us? I mean, we're in these hospitals or these clinics and things happen. We deal so much with people who are having so many difficulties and we rely so much on our sense of empathy and our ability to get into the mindset of our patients to try to really understand them 
but this poem is an invitation to think more about where that comes from, what allows us to be with patients in that way, and the importance of kindness and empathy. Absolutely. And I just think it takes really taking it in, reading it a second time, and really kind of looking at which lines speak to you. I'm always moved by the line that, that says that you, you must see how this could be you. It's even beyond empathy. It's into this realm of, you know, ask not for whom the bell tolls, right? The idea is that whatever is happening could happen to me. So it's, it kind of brings all of these things together, the golden rule and, and, you know, the idea that there's no distance between you and I, and that there is no other, you're all experiencing the same things in life. And this person who's currently in a hospital bed, who's just vulnerable and in pain and suffering could be me. There's really, how is it that it's not me? And I'm of course grateful, but, but it brings to light the idea that treat everybody as if you're treating yourself or somebody that you love. I like to say everybody is somebody's somebody. This is somebody's mother. This is somebody's child. This is somebody's someone. So let's treat everyone as they are somebody, somebody. I really admire people who can bring the story into such a sort of neat, concise narrative. I just love that about, about reading some of the best poets that I've enjoyed. Building on that, I'm, I'm wondering, David, if you have any thoughts or reflections as we're kind of nearing the end of this, this uh, time we have together, just wondering if you have any thoughts about the future for bringing poetry into medical education, maybe in a more formal and structured way or, or other ways that you can imagine. It's a great question, Shiva. I think we know that a lot of medical centers are now very interested in the humanities and they certainly draw in a lot of students and residents that way. Trainees read about this and they say, I want to go to a program that features the medical humanities. They understand the importance of it and how important it can be for their careers and for their professional lives and just for their lives overall. So I like to think that the humanities has a very bright future especially as we enter into this era of medicine as a much more organized kind of business-like model. It's really transitioned away from private practitioners just seeing patients. I mean, what we do now is something that we all do together. And I think that's wonderful and it offers, you know, I guess the economic advantages of economies of scale. But what do we potentially lose there? I think it's the question of our humanity, right? Can we maintain our humanity in these larger organizations where we play a certain role, right? At worst, we become cogs in a larger machine. I think poetry, essays, short stories, art, photography, theater, drama, dance, they all remind us that we're more than that. We're individuals. And these poems that we're reading today hopefully give listeners a chance to be more in touch with who they are, maybe make them question a little bit about what makes them unique, and to be able to carry that throughout the day, that there's a power in that, in people's individuality, in knowing your strengths, knowing your weaknesses, your vulnerabilities. I'd like to think that that's, that's the way back from an impersonal medicine model, right? The practice of medicine is a really humane art in which we fuse science and art. I mean, that's medicine at its best. And I've seen both of you do that, by the way. I can tell our listeners, I mean, I've seen both of you I and mean, Shiva and I go back a long way and I've watching Shiva 
whether it's with a therapy dog or trying to tease apart someone's shortness of breath. I mean, that is poetry, Shiva, watching you interact with patients in a way that communicates interest, empathy, that gets them to open up. But at the same time, I can see the wheels spinning as you sort of think through different differential diagnoses. That to me is real poetry and it's incredibly powerful. And I guess that's what I would like to leave our listeners with, the idea that these don't have to exist in separate worlds. They can exist together. The practice of medicine involves both science and art. And I think when we're at our best, when we're taking care of ourselves the best way, our patients the best way, we're bringing those two worlds together. It's not either or. And so if we're going to leave our listeners with anything, that's my wish that we would leave them with that. Reflecting on everything as a trainee, I think it is hard to deal with death as part of your training. It is hard to deal with sorrow and to talk about different emotions And I think what's wonderful about the medical humanities, what's wonderful about poetry is it's a gateway to allow for people who may not feel comfortable dealing with death, talking about sorrow. It allows them to either open up, listen, and feel comfortable sharing. And so I think it's so beautiful and so important and is something that many programs should promote and have as part of the training. So thank you so much, both of you, for sharing this passion of yours. And as we wrap up the podcast today, I just want to ask Dr. Elkin, any advice for fellow educators who want to embark on this poetic journey and maybe promote the medical humanities as part of their practice and training? Well, there's so many resources that are available now. If you Google medical humanities, you'll find so many resources out there. I've tried to assemble a number of them also. But I think both of you had these points earlier about finding really good mentors. There are mentors out there also, people like you, Nicole, and you, Shiva, who really embody the combination of these two things. I would encourage listeners who are interested in this to just go out and look in your institutions and find those people and try to watch them and see how they build their skills and bring the arts into the work that they're doing. And then you can read about it. You can listen to podcasts like this one. I think this podcast is invaluable at getting the word out. There's so many other online journals and different places, different activities are now being sponsored. I wish that I was a trainee in today's world. And I, to some extent, envy those of you who are, but I know there are other challenges. But I also want to thank you both for allowing the time and space for us to all be here together. This has been really meaningful and wonderful and much the spirit of meaningful medicine. So thank you. Thank you so much, David and Nicole. And I I would love to close with a poem. I'm going to end with a favorite by Rumi, who was a 13th century Persian Sufi poet. And it's called The Guest House. It's translated to English by Coleman Barks. It speaks to a lot of what we are sharing. The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. 
he may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Thank you so much, Shiva. Thank you so much, Dr. Elkin. We really appreciate you being on the podcast today. Thank you, both of you. Thank you for tuning in today and allowing us to be one of your meaningful moments. Please rate, review, and subscribe and share with friends, family, and colleagues. Meaningful Medicine was produced by Shiva Kayambashi, Nicole Hohenstein, David Elkin, Nikki Elkin, Ahaley Chattapadai, and Leigh Kodama. Editing by Nicole Hohenstein, Nikki Elkin, and Leigh Kodama. Intro and closing by Daniel Wentling. On Meaningful Medicine, we are careful to ensure that all stories are compliant with healthcare privacy laws and details may have been changed to ensure patient confidentiality. All views expressed are of the person speaking and not their employer.